0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. I'm your host Tyson Popplestone. Thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, I've got to let you know before we get into today's show. Every now and then, getting organised for this podcast, I'll send out a number of emails to certain guests that I think, you know, what there is no chance I'm going to hear back from that person. I reckon they get hundreds of emails a day, probably to the biggest platforms in the world. My email, I'm sure, will get lost in amongst the noise that is constantly flushing through their inbox, and yet. From time to time, certain people surprise me and respond saying, yeah, let's make it happen. Today's guest is one of those blokes who surprised me. Henry Roediger is the author of Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, a best selling book on the subject of learning and memory retrieval. Just had a quick look on Amazon. It's currently sitting just below 4,000 five star reviews, which is unbelievable on that platform. If you don't know Henry, he's a distinguished cognitive psychologist who's made substantial contributions to human learning and memory research. He earned his PhD from Yale University in 1973 and has held positions at Purdue University, the University of Toronto, Rice University, and he's currently affiliated with Washington University. Some of his research highlights include the retrieval practice and learning enhancement that is, how do we access the information that we've taken on board false memories and techniques to induce false memories in controlled experiments, becoming a pioneer in the field of illusory memory research. He's delved into explicit and implicit memory tests, extraordinary memory abilities, which we get into throughout this podcast, and also looked into collective and historical memory. Now, these are just a couple of things, but the reason I wanted him on the show is because I recently got into his book with the intention of trying to access some skills, some strategies to help me take on more of the information that I get from the books that I read, from the documentaries I watch, from the podcasts I listen to. I'm sure that all of you relate that sometimes we read, get to the end of the page and the memory's gone. I wanted to find out why that is and how we can help it. I also wanted to pick his brain around memory and how we can improve our memory in all regards, whether it's memorizing people's names, memorizing simple jobs that we have to do, and finding out what are some of the strategies that the best elite sports memory athletes are using to help them develop such incredible memories. We also look into the lifestyle factors that can, can improve our memory, whether there's any relationship to the reduction in dementia and the memory that we develop. We look at the natural ability to develop memories and some of the practical skills that we can use to improve it. It was an unbelievable conversation. I left it motivated, inspired, really excited to apply some of the strategies, not only to my own life, but to help my young boys grow and develop in their own knowledge and memory improvement. It's an absolute blast. If you're interested or you love this one, you can delve so much deeper through his book, Make It Stick, which I've linked for you in the show notes to this episode. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this great conversation with myself and Mr. Henry Roddy Rodiger.
1: So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing.
0: Roddy, I, I found out about your, your book a little while ago. A friend recommended it to me because the subject of learning has been something I'm, I'm fascinated in. I've got a background in teaching my wife's a teacher um, but funny the way it came up was i was i was trying to get better at just memory uh, memorizing people's names i feel like i'll get into a conversation i'll meet someone for the first time i'll introduce myself and i'll go away and i'll go oh my gosh they just told me their name i can't remember what it was and i was explaining i was explaining this to a, a friend of mine a little while ago they said hey you have to read this book make it stick because a, a lot of the uh, what we do on a day-to-day basis are probably not helpful when it comes to this idea of learning, and especially when it comes to this idea of memorizing knowledge, information, people's names. So, mm-hmm. I thought maybe a good way to kickstart the conversation would be to ask you the question what are a couple of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to effective learning or memorizing of information?
1: Okay, well, let's start with the problem you just mentioned, which you're not the only one who has this problem, almost everyone does. And so, uh, the there are some complicated techniques about remembering names and faces. I can get into that. But the simplest thing to do is as soon as you hear a name, I mean, you're all busy, shaking hands, smiling, trying to make a good impression, and so you're distracted. But the best thing you can do is mentally repeat it to yourself immediately. And then try, uh, if, if it's not awkward to use it in the conversation, well, well Betty, what do you think about so-and-so? Uh, and that way, uh, and then if you keep using it at uh, intervals after that, you'll have the name. And so the main piece of advice there, which is hard to do, is pay careful attention in the first place. Be, be effortful, be conscious. Okay, I'm knowing somebody new. And then repeat the name to yourself. And then if you can, out loud.
0: Yeah. yeah, So it.
1: the, more, and so i am been teaching a new class starting Monday. This is our beginning of our semester, and I'll have a bunch of students, and I'll learn their names. And the way I do it every semester um, is just with flashcards. Just put the face, they, they give us all their pictures. Put the face on one side, the name on the other, and just keep practicing every day until I have them all. And then, of course, they don't look necessarily like what their picture was. So you have that problem, but that's pretty easily solved. So, anyway, and then I try, uh, even the first day of class, to call them by name.
0: Yeah so so it's just that process of actually recalling their name in the moment. You're right. I I notice that quite a lot. I'm I'm so concerned about making sure I get the handshake right, making sure I'm polite, making sure I introduce anyone else that I'm with that it's it's almost just a courtesy thing. <laughs> it's like we're just uh scoping each other out, but the idea of actually memorizing the name is is probably not at the forefront of the mind. So the idea of just repeating it throughout that conversation. I notice and it's, it also seems quite personable. I notice whenever I meet someone and uh, I've just met them, and they bring my name up in conversation. It seems like perhaps more than even just memorizing their name; it's it's just a nice, personable way to kickstart a conversation. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, there are people uh, they're called memory athletes. I don't know if this is a popular in <clears throat> in the world of mind sports, mental sports. Uh, memorizing is uh, has a class of its own, and one of the tasks they have is to see names and faces one time. Uh, They go through a list of, say, 150 or 200. Name, face, one time. And then you get the face later, and a random order, all the faces, and you have to come up with the names. It's one of the hardest tasks they have to do, and they've developed special techniques. If you look at books on uh, memorizing, they'll usually have these techniques like... uh, Trying to look at the face, find a prominent feature, and then somehow hook that to the name. And once you practice it a whole lot, you can do it quickly. I'm not good at this, uh, but some of them, you know, you give them two hundred, they'll get a hundred or something like that. And so it's pretty amazing because it's they're coming boom, 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 right in order, just a few seconds apiece. Uh, all, so sorry to interrupt, but that's. Uh, That's a whole other world. I mean, for most of us, just repeating the name, using what we call retrieval practice, repeating it immediately, but it won't stick if you just repeat it immediately. You need to keep doing it off and on. If you're at this party and you look over at them later and think, aha, I met that person, it's Betty, or whoever. And and so just keep doing it uh, at greater intervals, and then you'll eventually make it stick more in long-term memory.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I guess just that process of forcing yourself to remember in a situation like that is perhaps the one thing that many of us forget. It's it's so obvious when you say it out loud that, okay, simply repeating it, remembering it, associating the name with the face is, is one of the most helpful tools. I've also heard, and to use the example of the memory athletes that you just brought up, that a lot of the time creating some form of a story around something that you would like to remember is a really helpful way. I, I often... I met uh, two people um, in, in my local street a couple of weeks ago. They just actually moved to where I am from the US. And uh, the lady's name was Chris. The the man's name was Jay. And I, I, I thought I would just try this under no illusion that I knew it was going to be right. Um, I just associated her name. She doesn't look anything like her with the name Chris Kardashian and he was Jay Leno. They both look nothing like the people, but I saw them this morning and uh, it seemed to stick in my mind. I was like, okay, I came up with this fun little name game. Is is there any science to back up the fact that that's an effective method? Because it seemed to help me at least this
1: morning. Absolutely. Uh, If anything you do to elaborate, and even if you make up a crazy association like Jay Leno, um, then that's helpful. I mean, anything you do to make it distinctive to stand out. So uh, if you can look at them and then think of who you thought of, then you've got the name. So it's easier to remember two people in an image than it is a name and a face in an image. So I think that's a good technique.
0: Yeah, it seemed to be helpful for me. I was happy because I've been trialling a couple of other things, as I said, which is why I found my way to make it stick, that, that seems from my perspective to be the most helpful one. But I'm also aware of the fact that maybe with name retrieval, that's a, a really helpful thing. But when it comes to the actual idea of um, education or retaining information, I know a lot of the time, and I've heard you speak about this at length now since I found out about you, but I know a lot of the time when I'm trying to retain information, especially a lot of information, what I'll try and do is I'll go back and I'll just reread and highlight and um, maybe take some notes. And I'm constantly amazed at how bad I am at retaining the information, regardless of (laughs) how. Well, I don't know if this is true. Sometimes when I'm more interested in a subject, it seems to stick more effectively. But if there's some basic information, uh, for example, one thing in my household, which my wife would be quick to tell you, is she'll ask me to do a job quite regularly and it goes in one ear and out the other. So there are a couple of subjects that I've brought up there, but I guess uh, starting with the first one, when it comes to this information uh, memorization, when it comes to text or something that you're studying for, why is it that so much of the information that we take in and so many of the techniques we've been taught to prepare for a, 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 an exam or a test or whatever it may be is so unhelpful when it comes to actually retaining the information for long enough to actually be able to put it down on the test paper.
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, Some of the things we do, and and we're even taught to do them, a lot of people talk about repetition. And repetition is great for learning, but it shouldn't be bunched all together. It should be spread out in time. And so spaced repetition is good, but if you read a chapter and you read it over again, immediately that's not going to help you much. You just read it. You're not going to pick up much the second time. Uh, You'll probably just let your eyes slide over it and the other thing uh, we confuse familiarity you can read a textbook and think well I got all that I just said it all uh, say a history textbook or something it's not complicated um, and so you think you have it and then if you go back what you highlighted or uh, marked in some way you think oh you know, I'll, I'll study you what I thought was really important and then uh you have read it and you've become familiar with it, but the only way to really find out if you know it is to ask yourself about it. And so, like when I have a student, my I used to teach introductory psychology every year, uh, and students would come in after the first test practically in tears because um, they'd say, I got a bad grade on the test by studying and studying and studying. And I'd say, how do you study? And they would say, I reread, I highlighted, I reread my lecture notes. Um, and I would say, well, look, there are all these key terms in the back of the book. Did you look at those and try to say, can I use this in a paragraph? Can I define it and tell what it means? Nope, didn't think of that. And so what you really need to do is to test yourself. And that does two things. One, it lets you know what you know and what you don't know, which is important. That's what we call the metacognitive aspect of learning. And it's a very hard thing. Uh, you know, you read that book and you think, I know it. I got it. I just read it. I got it all. Uh, but unless you ask yourself questions, you don't you don't really know what you really understood and will remember and what kind of went by you, like you say. Uh, and so... What we call retrieval practice is one of the best things to do, to look at questions and test yourself. You can, it's even good to, while you're reading all it slows your way down to write questions yourself, that, like ones that might be on the test later. Um, and so why do people do this technique if it doesn't work in the long term? Well, the answer is it does work in the short term. If you read a text passage right now and I give you an immediate test, especially if it's a multiple choice test, you'll do fine. Most of the time. Um, but I mean, if it's pretty straightforward material, but in a week or two weeks, you won't remember the material. Uh, it's kind of like the name, you know, one second later you might have it, but a week later you don't, unless you work at it. And so it's the same thing with text. It's, um, Uh, you need to say, read the chapter now, make questions or whatnot, test yourself, read the chapter again, you'll pick up the stuff you missed uh, before the test. And so testing yourself in multiple different ways, short answer questions, essay questions, uh, flashcards, if it's the kind of material that will, you know, be amenable to flashcards, not everything is. Philosophy is not, for example. Uh, So, Uh, You've got to adapt your study strategy to what works as we talk about it and make it sick, But um, all of those things, any kind of way you elaborate on the text, when you're reading a paragraph, pause after it and say, how does this apply to me? How do I relate this to something else I know? Uh, And those things will be very helpful. They slow you down. I mean, a lot of students, I feel like they say, well, I've got an hour. I got to finish this chapter. So boom, 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 boom. They're just kind of zipping through the chapter without pausing to reflect and to let it sink in. Take a little breaks. Uh, it's hard to read straight for an hour. Take a little break after 15 or 20 minutes. Even if it's just getting up out of your chair and walking around the room. Uh, take a little break and then come back to it. You'll be refreshed.
0: Yeah, I think in a culture of productivity and efficiency, one thing which is often overlooked, and I say this from personal experience, is how well you take on knowledge and what's celebrated is how much information you can get through. If I speak to someone yeah. and they say, Hi, I read three books a week, in my mind, I go, Oh my gosh, I need to improve how much I read, forgetting the fact that even me trying to read one book a week at the moment yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that the information's been absorbed. Have, yeah. have, have you had much of an experience with that? Because I understand from a college perspective, which I've been through here in Australia, A lot of my approach at the time that I was going through it was just try and know what you needed to know for the test, um, get the marks that you need to get your certificate, and then move on, which I'm sure says more about me than it does about the actual structure of the course. But what I found interesting was there were so many people who had that same approach let's just cram, take it on as quickly as we can, and then so much of that information in six months seemed to disappear, whereas with this process of retrieval, stopping, slowing down, understanding what you're reading and how it applies to your life, it seems to, um, and and I've heard you speak about this, it seems to have a far more effective capacity to stay on board long term when you've slowed down that process and taken these steps.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean some questions make me think, well I don't really need this anymore, Uh, but for many things, you don't know what you're going to need in later life, especially these days with people changing jobs all the time. Uh, and I certainly found that I still draw. Uh, you know, I went to college 50 years ago, but I still draw on things I learned in college uh, uh, now. So I think it is important. Um, yeah, I think you make a good point for a lot of students studying, like you described, and that will fade fast.
0: Yeah, I asked my wife the other night, who's who's a, a really good teacher here, really passionate about it. She teaches history and she seems uh, to have a far greater understanding on this subject than what I realised because I, I came home, I was listening to the Audible version of Make It Stick mm-hmm. the other day and I got home from my run and I, I asked her the question. I said, hey, what what is the most effective way for a person to learn in your opinion? And um, she went through a couple of different things. And, and then something that she mentioned which was really interesting to me and I believe her based on how much I see her remember from the the books and things that she does read, one thing she likes to do is um, take notes, but more than that, she finds she's really benefited by pictures that she draws, and Mm -hmm. as she explained this, I thought, I wonder if that is in fact almost a way of retrieving the information because obviously to draw a picture about what you've read, you're going to have to go into that mind to retrieve the information that you've just developed. I don't know if there's much science around that, but I was interested to pick your brain around like this idea of journaling in a way that you're actually drawing pictures rather than just taking notes after you've read text.
1: I could send you a paper on that very topic. But yes, uh, basically things that are, uh, we remember pictures better than words. If I were to give you a list of, 50 pictures of common objects, say uh, uh, a uh, football, um, a uh, automobile, you know, just common things and give one group the list of words, automobile, you know, basketball, whatever else, uh, and then give another group that same set of pictures telling them what I'm going to ask you later is for you to write down the words. So in other words, you you give the word the group you give the words to, well they're they're getting it in the same mode they need to write it down. You might think they'd be better. But no, uh you're much better if you get pictures rather than words, even if you don't have to recall the words. So uh this has been known and since the time we don't go into this much in the book, just a little bit in one chapter, but since the time of the ancient Greeks they've known uh, about uh, mnemonic devices and memory palaces, and so the basic idea of, of uh, let's say, uh, let me tell you about the method of loci. Um, this is uh, simply where you have a list a set of locations, say, rooms, and if you have a house, uh, the places in your house, the front, the front sidewalk, the front doorstep, the entryway. Uh, so forth and so on, all around the house. And if you have a set of things to remember, whether it be a grocery list or points you want to make in a speech or whatever it is, you simply arrange them and you put them in each place uh, along the way. So um, this is what uh, the American writer Mark Twain did for his speeches. He wouldn't use any notes. He'd use this method. Uh, And... It works wonderfully well. Um, I used to do demonstrations in class when I taught the class of uh, challenging the students the first day to, I'm going to make up 20 objects, just 20 concrete objects, and then present them one at a time for about eight seconds at a time, and try to remember them in order. And I would use a version of the method of loci, it was actually a a slightly different version. But anyway, uh, same idea. You have locations, and and then you have uh, things to put in locations. So you form an image of the first word in the list, and you put in the first location, second word, and so forth. And then you can, at the end, uh, you know the locations. Those are your retrieval cues. And then you just, I usually close my eyes and then run through my locations, and call out items in each location. And it, try it. It really works so amazingly well. And the students are amazed if I can get it. Uh, usually I get 18, 19, 20, but most of them would just get five or six. So here's this old guy getting all these, uh, and here they are not doing so well. And then they learn how to do it later in the course, of course.
0: Yeah. So, From, from a uh, student perspective as well, I, I like that style of approach as well especially to use the Mark Twain example it's far more engaging I find to listen to someone who's speaking a little more freely and just that process of association sounds as though it leaves a little room to be in the moment you know when you have someone at the front of a room and you have to sit there and you can tell that they're doing their best to memorize a script and perhaps they've got a piece of paper there and I don't know a a little bit of the uh, a little bit of the energy seems zapped away from whatever's being presented when it's like that and I'm from the world of stand-up comedy here in oh. Melbourne, Roddy, and, and what I notice on a regular basis is when you have a newer stand-up comedian, you can really see with a lot of them, um, that when they're trying to recall a joke, they're recalling it the way they had written it down. <laughs> and part of the magic of the yeah. joke is is just evaporated based on the fact that it's like, Oh, okay, this is something that's being recalled. You're not right you're not in the same room yeah. as us fully. Um I mean, Mark Twain would be a, gr- a great example of that, always had a reputation for being quite an uh, entertaining figure, whether it was yeah. in his words or in his performances and speeches. Yeah. So perhaps yeah. no surprise. So is that, is that a way that you approach your lectures?
1: Yeah, I try to. Uh, these days with PowerPoint, I'll have pictures or whatever up there, but I try just to point to them and not, you know, regurgitate what's on the slide because that's just deadly reading your slides, and you see people do it all the time. Uh, but, yeah, you try to just use them as backdrop. That that you know, What you're saying is in different words than what's on the screen, or at least that's what I try to do.
0: For sure, for sure, and I guess if you needed to, at least you've got the help of the photo to spark a memory. It is,
1: it is. I mean, that way you don't need any notes because the notes are on the board. I mean, I've seen some of the slides so many times, I just glance at it and I can know what, exactly what you say.
0: What are some of the biggest topics or the most popular topics that you lecture on?
1: Uh, well, most of it's memory, um, and often it's how to you improve your memory. Uh, I mean, this is not in the class. This is one of my Mastery of Talks, and you sounds like you've watched some of my talks, so that was probably what you saw. Uh, I have studied other things, though, um, like, uh, well, uh, studied the, the topic of false memories for a long time when we have the illusion that we're remembering something, but really we're either remembering it differently from the way it happened or we're remembering it something that didn't happen at all. And uh, that's been uh, a main thrust of my research, more in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, but that's one topic. Another one that I'm doing working on now, which I think is really interesting, is called collective memory. This is not memory like we usually think of. It. It's more how we remember in groups, what we remember. It has to do with identity. So for example national memories is something I study. Uh, uh, everybody who's Australian, I assume, has some things they learn from history, some they pick up from the culture, their parents watching movies, reading novels. So you've got uh, you know the, the Australian national memory. I couldn't Obviously, tell you what that is. And I've, we've got the American national memory. And it's not that every American has the same memory, I suspect. And in fact, that's one thing that distinguishes. If you ask, and we've done this kind of thing, say people who are conservative and vote for President Trump, ex-President Trump, uh, and people who are more liberal, and you ask for more of the greatest events in U.S. history, and the list is somewhat different. Uh, the the people who are more conservative start talking about Columbus discovering America uh, uh, and more religious things, how the pilgrims came over from England, uh, whereas the more liberal people talk about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Not that conservatives totally miss that, and not that. Uh, and if you ask them, uh, if you look at negative things, people bring up genocide of the Native Americans we were terrible to the well, not me personally but uh, terrible to the Native Americans just like you have that same issue mm-hmm. in Australia with the aboriginals uh, and then conservatives don't bring that up uh, slavery that's another one uh, liberals bring up the the, the uh, tragedy of slavery and conservatives hardly bring that up so things like that. So we have slightly different national memories, even within one country. And You might find the same thing in Australia.
0: For sure. For sure. I wonder, does that even apply to smaller things? I had a classic example this morning. Yeah. In Australia, um, Os- oh, sorry, in the town that I live in, I live in a, a relatively older town. I live in a town called Point Lonsdale, I don't know what the average age is, but there's a lot of retirees that come down here. So as a result, I've got a lot of mates down here who are in their 80s and and above. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure some of our national memories are slightly different. But I had an uh, interesting conversation with a, a friend of mine down here this morning, and he's 82. And he was explaining to me, my wife and I have just moved to a new house and we're renting because um, the town that we're in at the moment, the, the prices are just preposterous <laughs> They're through the roof. And uh, we, we told him that we'd moved house and he said, oh, did you buy or did you rent? And we explained to him that we're just renting for the time being, um, you know, because the price of the property is, is just huge. And he said, yeah, it's only going to go up, so you should jump on board. And I thought that was interesting and, and history tells us that's true. But here mm-hmm. in Australia, um, there seems to be, an obsession with this idea of home ownership and rightly so in in so many regards it's something that I'm sort of trying to navigate my way through and understand at the moment but this idea if you speak to anyone from my mum's age who's 65 and above even younger like this idea of home ownership is just a must if you're an Australian and
1: mm-hmm.
0: as they were explaining that to me I thought I wonder what the emotional tie with that is is that a purely monetary thing is it a security thing is it a story that they've created do things like that fit into the category of a, a, a national memory because for so yeah. long if you got in in the 50s the the value that you made on that property is astronomical
1: right yeah no i would say that certainly part of national character and the national ethos uh and probably a memory of their the older ones of their childhood homes and if most people grow up in houses you often want to duplicate, you know, what you had. Uh, my son lives in New York City and couldn't possibly afford anything in New York City, so he rents an apartment uh, and probably will stay in New York the rest of his life and never own a home, although he occasionally talks about it. Uh, so um, it depends a lot on where you live. And in, in where I live in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, home ownership is very common. Most everybody I know, uh, on the faculty here, owns a home uh, in one area or another. So that might be modest homes, but they're still you know, perfectly viable homes.
0: For sure, for sure. The, the idea of um... Uh, just bringing back to childhood memories or the other reasons that might motivate them to want to see us invest in a home is one that's interesting. And I guess comes under this idea of false memory in many regards as well. I remember on an individual level, I look back at times in my life with sort of sentimental eyes, but even at times where I know I wasn't necessarily my happiest or I was going through certain stresses or anxieties. And in the time I knew for a fact that I wasn't necessarily that excited about where I was, But for whatever reason, I'm 36 now, I might look back 25 years and go, oh, back in the good old days. And it's interesting that certain emotions seem to be forgotten when you're reflecting on a certain time in your life. So for example, I know there's a lot of people in the current day that they'll look at their situation and they might be cynical about where they're at or disappointed with certain areas or perhaps even upset. And for whatever reason, you fast forward 20 years and they look back like these were the good old days where everything was just going beautifully, yeah. does that come under the category of false memory? Because I'm always fascinated about why it is that we look at the past in in, in many of our lives with such rose-coloured glasses.
1: Yeah, I don't know there'd be a false memory. There's one finding that, I mean, this is, this is what you're describing as, uh, I don't know if it's worldwide, but certainly it's in the US too, where a lot of research has been done and England and Europe. But people um, seem to forget negative memories when positive memories that uh, certainly unless you're a depressed person, clinically depressed. And so even if you had a pretty unhappy childhood, you can remember the high points, the good points of it. And um, so I think that's just because we tend to remember positive things and forget negative ones, perhaps as a defense mechanism of some sort, keeping us in check. But that's a very uh, uh, oft-repeated finding and very interesting. Even in, even in laboratory studies uh, where you give people positive words and negative words, they'll remember the positive ones better than the negative ones when you try to reflect the words on all kinds of other things like frequency in the language and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. My wife and I often, at the moment, we've got a three-year-old boy and a one-year-old boy. So as a result, oh. it sounds like you've got kids yourself. It's a, a chaotic. It's a chaotic household here. <laughs> there's a lot of emotions, yeah. and uh, and as I said, the the age group of the people that were around at the moment, they look at us and laugh and say, "Oh, you guys have got to take this take this on board. Like it's a really special moment. It goes by so quickly." Good and judge. I know I'm old <laughs> enough to know that 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 would be true. But even still, with the pooey nappies, the lack of sleep, the temper tantrums, yeah. you go, "Oh, surely there's." not going to be much that you look back on (laughs) with rose-colored glasses from here but yeah i'm sure we will hey uh one thing you mentioned before um briefly and we've touched on a couple is just the use of mnemonic devices for retaining certain information are there Mm -hmm. are there certain mnemonic devices that are standouts when it comes to memory retention
1: well the uh memory athletes all use something called the memory palace and it's like the memory of loci that we talked about using your house, except they have palaces that hold two, Originally, they call it a palace, is they'll have things that hold two and three hundred and four hundred items. And they won't just have one. They'll have 30 or 40 palaces. I mean, they can be, uh, uh, you know, hotels they've been to, all kinds of things. They deliberately memorize these places, big sets of them. Uh, and then they use those. They use imagery, and they take in the information, sort in some particular location, and they practice and practice and practice. I mean, four or five hours a day doing this kind of thing. And so it's um, uh, not for the faint of heart. It's a, very, it's a sport for young people. They age out of it in their thir- late 30s. Uh, so basically, uh, the World Memory Championships are held every year usually in Asia these days uh, it used to be all over the world but now and the Asian uh, the uh, for a while the Germans and the English were the best now it seems like uh, uh, North Korean guy is just amazing uh, they let him out to come to these competitions he's so good and Chinese are very good uh, Indians are coming out strong. Mongolians are really good. They have a memory academy in Mongolia. And I was associated with the memory tournament in the U.S. And they showed up here and they had patches all over their uniform. They wore uniforms. They had patches all over them, advertising Mongolian banks and Mongolian car dealerships and that kind of thing. Wow. So it's a whole industry, a whole sport. If you Google World Memory Championships, you can see the records that they've set. Uh, for example, um, the North Korean guy. One of the tasks is what we, what psychologists call digit digit span, number span. So, just how many single digits can you remember in order? So, six, five, four, one, three, nine, two, and now we can say six, five, four, one, three, nine, two. But the record for that, for saying hearing digits one at a time, one per second, which is about what I was saying about he could remember 470-something of them, in order. Uh, and, and how? Those memory palaces. He would do things like take every three digits, create an image. He would have an image for every three digits, put it in the first place, next three digits in the second place, and so forth. And I was gonna,
0: yeah, I was going to ask you about this because the idea of retaining memories over the long term makes more sense to me. Like that... That yeah. uh, time element that you spoke about makes yeah. a lot of sense. You want to remember where things are in your palace. Well, spend time familiarizing yourself with it. But then, yeah. as you just said, 432, I think it was, different numbers that you remember with one number per second. So are these people just operating at a much faster speed? Obviously, they've got the background of practice. They, they know what their palaces look like, I assume. They know where they're going to store yeah. certain letters. Is it the same thing just taking place on a place on a way shorter time frame?
1: Yes, it's the same principle, but they have uh, they're all really smart. Uh, They all have what I call high working memory capacity. The ability to hold things in mind and ignore irrelevant things. Um, That's working memory. Working with the information in mind before it goes away. They're excellent at that and They say, oh, anybody could do what we do. I used to have a bad memory until I started doing this. You could do it too. And I used to believe that, but I don't anymore. I I just heard so many people that started off trying to do this in a serious way, and they just gave up. You know, they Mm. just couldn't do it. So I do think it takes some special talent uh, that the ones who are really good at it, like the ones who compete. Uh, But in the U.S. and in most European countries, and perhaps in Australia too, there are competitions like in Germany, every city has their own competition <laughs> practically, and then they have a German competition once a year uh the u s it's not that developed developed that well yet, yeah they're trying to get it better here.
0: That natural talent's always a factor, isn't it? I come from a background in middle distance running and I train really hard. In fact, mm-hmm. I trained with a number of athletes who competed at the Olympic Games and we had the same training programs in many regards. Mm-hmm. And while I got to a certain level, which was good nationally, on an international scale, I would have been absolutely blown out of the water. And uh, yeah, there's mm-hmm. some athletes who, who just seem to be able to take that work and, and take it to a brand new level. It, I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday. who has got a background in motocross and he said the same thing it seems every field that you look at including the memory champs now seems to have some just freaks of nature how does that number retention convert to other areas are these guys and girls more naturally um uh, able to recall information that they read from textbooks as well
1: uh unless they use the special techniques they like they they tell us they forget their keys where they put their keys they you know, their wives tell them one thing and it's in one year and not the other. Unless they're using their special techniques, they're just like the rest of us. But if they use their special techniques, uh, and they claim uh, that they can't retain things over the long term, that you know, they'll, if they use their memory powers, they'll get rid of it immediately. But we touched them one time. We had them memorize things on one day. And we didn't tell them to go test them on the next day, and they had this, oh, I'm not going, cool. I can't do it again. And then we tested them the next day, and they forgot some, but they were still much, much better than our control people who were students, who mm. have good memories. But uh, So they really do, as long as they haven't used the memory powers again, they can get back to it, and they can remember much of what they originally had the next day. I don't know if they could do it a week later.
0: Yeah. So the memory palace would be the number one standout mnemonic device that people are using. Right.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It's really interesting. I I feel as though there's a romantic, uh, like you're almost romanticizing the idea of hard work, like to go back to the idea of a college student. Sometimes when we sit down with a textbook and we say, okay, I read this for five hours. It's almost as though we're trying to convince ourselves that we deserve to have a great result. And to use the example again of distance runners, it's not always the athletes who, who run the most miles in a week who win the most races. There seems mm-hmm. to be a balance between obviously natural talent, the work that they put in, the strength work, also the recovery work um, that takes place, the sleep. Like There's so many factors. Yep. Um, so it's always a little bit of a shock when people find out that the best marathon runners in the world don't necessarily run the most miles. And then yep. when it comes to these idea of, of students in, in uh, test situations, how much of that is taking place? Do you think? How much of these guys going? Okay, I've put in the work. Surely, um, you know, the the universe has got to give me some form of good result. And they're not necessarily as interested in what the most effective way to approach their study is.
1: Yeah, I I think that can happen. They think if I've put in the work, I'll do well. Uh, but they have to put in the work the right way, and it depends on you know on the type of test also, uh, students. Uh, often there are big classes in universities, say introductory biology or introductory psychology, uh, most introductory anything. People give multiple choice tests because they're easy to score, hard to make up, but easy to score. And um, a multiple choice test, so we can recollect things uh, and things can just look familiar. So there's kind of two different ways of remembering, if you will. One is recollection, that you're really sure, I'm conscious of this, yeah, I remember this. In other, words, in other cases, well, us just looks familiar on a mobile choice test. Here are four alternatives. Well, I recognize that one from somewhere. I'll pick that one. And often you're right because familiarity can get you there. But familiarity doesn't help you much in recalling things. Mm-hmm. Recall depends on recollection. So if you're asking an essay question, being familiar, if you saw something, doesn't help you a bit. You need to be able to create a story, a theme, and put it all together. That's why practicing creating uh, or looking at, at the end of the chapter, uh, questions and trying to answer them after you've read the chapter and seeing how you've done, or making up the questions as you go along and then testing from your own questions. Those are so much better ways, especially if you're going to have an essay or a short answer test.
0: Yeah, yeah. How much does the idea of... So there was a, an example, and I'm not sure if it was the chapter that you wrote, but there was an example that was given in um, in the book. Or there's a couple of examples that, that were really helpful to me. But one was about a, a hunter who had part of a bullet stuck in a valve in one part of his yep. brain, and uh, the story, and here we go, you're testing my uh, ability to r- recall this story at the moment, which is going to be good for me. Um, but essentially, the idea was uh, the surgeon that he was lucky enough to see, he was obviously a, a, an elite level surgeon, worked with a number of you know great and important people from around the world. But what stood out was this surgeon hadn't just developed the ability to retain information because a, a surgeon who's just retained information and that's it isn't really good to anyone you have to have a surgeon who's got the information but then also has the ability to implement what they've learned and yeah. hopefully for your sake over the course of many years um, I find this really interesting because often and especially when it's practical information when it comes to me I can watch a YouTube video and I have the information and then I try and put it into practice and I go okay there's a disconnect here no. how much does that implementation factor and i guess uh, as i say it now it makes me realize it's probably just another way to recall information and just being put into place practically how much does that implementing what you've actually just started to learn add to the speed in which you learn that that skill
1: Uh, it adds an awful lot and one thing um doing actions actions are remembered better than just instructions so the experiments being done Uh, where you hear a statement, like pick up the mouse. And so some people actually do pick up the mouse off the desk. Other people just hear the statement. And a third group hears the statement and imagines performing the action. And what you find is if... And then you do this for a whole lot of different objects. Um, I used to do these kinds of experiments. We had this whole array of toys, essentially little soldiers and little whatever. Uh, And so uh, if you actually perform the action, you'll remember it a couple weeks later the best. If you imagine doing it, you remember it next best. If you just hear the statement, then you do the worst. And and what the test is, you just read the statements and you say, did this happen two weeks ago? Uh, And if you acted it out, you remember having you remember the statement better, Uh, even though you heard it also. I mean, you heard other statements, and so performing the actions really helps. And so, in learning life from YouTube videos, well, the first you're probably not going to watch a complicated video and get it all the first time. You just need to slowly go through, stopping it, performing the action, and then speed up and get better and better get the sequence down, and then you'll probably be okay. But uh, people learn actions and motor skills typically really well. And, you know, you see that kind of expertise like in, say, automobile mechanics that uh, they just didn't... You can't just read about a car in a book and they expect to be a mechanic. You've got to practice over and over and diagnosing and all kinds of things to be a really good mechanic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, I was involved for a couple of years here in Australia on the stock market on a, a day trading level. So I was, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the right noise. That's probably the noise that came out of my mouth more than ever during those two wow. years. Um, but that's my best example I, I think I can think of when it comes to actually taking on information and then trying to cross that information onto a live market and understand what the data that you're being given actually means but then not only like there were so many different facets to the learning into the practice that were taking place obviously mm-hmm. you had to have some idea especially in day trading of of what a particular uh, a, a bar graph pattern type meant like what does this yep. mean what does this suggest what are the odds that it's going to go in a particular direction what does it say about the psychology of the people trading here but then, more than that, there was the actual uh, technological side where you had to try and figure out how to put the trade in at a fast enough time, at the right time, how to get out at the right time, control yeah. the emotions, and that felt like a very tiring, especially for no, probably first eighteen months because my head was often clogged. It felt difficult. It felt hard. I was often I'd come out of this office and just feel confused <laughs> and frustrated. No. And uh, I often I say all that to say that often during the process where I learnt an incredible amount, I often felt at the end of each day that barely anything had been learnt, And it was a really frustrating experience. How much is that a process of people learning? Like, is that difficulty supposed to be there? If you're doing it right, is it supposed to eliminate that difficulty?
1: Well, I think, uh, so to go back to the surgeon example, the way uh, one of the points of that story, which I think is a great one, is that what he would do after surgery is he would reflect, what did I do? What went right? What went wrong? What could I do better next time? But when you're day trading, you don't ever have a chance to pause for reflection. It's just, as I understand I've never done it and don't plan to. It just goes by you <laughs> to too fast. Uh, so you probably have difficulty learning because of that. You need to slow things down. Think hard about them. I mean, you could, at the end of the day, probably go back over some of the trades you made and look at them more slowly and more carefully. But probably if you say you're just exhausted at the end of the day and that's the last thing you want to do, uh, go back and look at them again. But that probably would be more effective for learning.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because a lot of professional traders say that's exactly what you should do. So I didn't even mention oh. that during the um, during the process of the trades, I was actually recording the screen and my audio, and I would try and speak through each situation for exactly the reason you just mentioned because oh. you're right. Um, uh, and then journaling, uh, yeah, it's really interesting just to hear how well that does correlate to to what you teach because even journaling is something you have to go through. You have to you had to rate from you know A to F on the entry of your trade and the exit of your trade, um, the volume of money that you put into it. um, And then you have to explain the process of thought that was taking place. So uh, I think that was, that was part of the reason I, um, you know, without going too far into everything that I do, I had a business that was already working. I think I saw dollar signs and I saw some professionals doing really well in it, and they made it sound easy. They were also selling courses, coincidentally, <laughs> which could have been could have been part of my downfall. But I, I think I got excited by that, and I forgot that, like every. Uh, area in the world if you're not going to put in the work that's required to to get a bit of a foundation and to become good at it it's probably not worth it. and i realized i was i was probably kidding my time and that energy was was better off used um used somewhere else but uh, mm-hmm. uh the thing i was curious and i don't know whether this is sort of going out uh, to a field that's not solely yours but i was curious to know whether there was any correlation between memory athletes and the use of their brains and reduction in things like dementia
1: that's what actually a friend of mine, Nelson Dallas, his grandmother got Alzheimer's and he watched her go down. And that's when he took it up. He said, I want to get so good that if this happens to me, I'll last longer. My memory will last longer. That was his motivation. Uh, and he became U.S. champion three or four times and placed in the, I think, top 20 in the world championships once. He's a computer scientist by... profession at the University of Miami um a good person for the interview but yeah many athletes if you want to he's very very personable what's his name sorry uh Nelson Dallas I can send it to you that'd be Uh, great his website um he also has a book of course so he'd be happy to be (laughs) on uh yeah uh no, it's an interesting world i I haven't been part of it for a while now when I was studying these people I wasn't pa- participating obviously
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure um the The other thing that I was curious to find out about was okay, so we've got our mental palaces, the mnemonic devices uh, obviously that that come along with that. but outside of the actual uh, practical mental skills that you can practice. Are there lifestyle factors around diet, nutrition, sleep that so many of these athletes are, are doing at a high level?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, Nelson's uh, climbed up Mount Everest several times, so he's very physically fit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, he, um, some of them take it very seriously. Others, there's a guy named Ben Pridmore from England. He has hamburgers all the time and... Doesn't seem to take care of himself physically, and at the time I knew him, he lived in his parents' basement. He was an accountant. Uh, He would just go to work as an accountant when he needed to, and otherwise, he would practice these mental exercises. Very nice guy. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, Very well-liked by the whole community of memory athletes. He's probably retired by now, I guess, but... uh, Anyway, they just come in kind of all shapes and sizes. Uh, uh, one's a lawyer, one's a psychologist. Those are, uh, but they do all kinds of things. Like One was of- a medical student. And the medical student said he learned about this and decided to do it to learn all of these medical terms. And medical students have to learn every system of the body, the skeletal system, all the muscles, nervous system, all that. So... And so it's just a huge task of memorization, but you really need to know
0: it. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the, the medical field as well, because the medical field is one that I, I'm really curious about. I'm, I'm very interested in, in both how medicine works, and I'm also interested in hearing how uh, more natural approaches to health take place, and the correlation There's often a little bit of a stigma attached to you know the, the naturopath types, that they're a bit hippie, a bit woo-woo, mm-hmm. have no appreciation for medicine, and the flip side of that, the more academic side, is that there's not a real appreciation for the body's ability to heal itself, for the impact of exercise and nutrition and diet. And there's more mm-hmm. of a focus on, um, you know, perhaps just the power of medication, which is obviously uh, uh, difficult to argue with. We've seen so many amazing breakthroughs there. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing that uh, sort of just came to mind as you, you mentioned the medical field there is a lot of the time you'll go to a, a doctor and they do have an amazing ability to recall certain amounts of information without a, a good awareness or a good understanding of, you know, other approaches to um, health mm-hmm. that might be able to be used. Is there – I've got a brother-in-law who's who's asperger's he's, he's on the spectrum and he's very good at, um, the, you know, memorising certain things. He's got certain fascinations with certain objects. But then when it comes to actually be able to apply that day-to-day um, information in a, in a really practical way there seems to be a, a little bit of a disconnect there is is that um, sorry I've thrown a lot of information at you there I think I'm formulating my mm-hmm. question as I speak but is is that like a little bit of a trait with some of these memory athletes that you see there's there's almost that uh, crazy ability to recall and uh, retain information but then when it comes to an actual conversation or just day-to-day, Conversations is, is there a little disconnect, or is that not a common trait? As you said, it sounds no, like there's it's not a common lot
1: of... trait. Uh, they don't seem to be on the spectrum that I can tell. Uh, some of them are a little unusual, but um, <laughs> I'm in academia, so there's lots of unusual people. Uh, so um, the, uh, but no, they uh, don't seem to be on the spectrum. And some people say, "Oh, you must have a photographic memory." And they say, "No, no, not at all." And uh, I've asked them, do people show up at your tournament saying, oh, I don't use these techniques you use. I just have a photographic memory. And they said, well, one guy did uh, in England uh, one time. He was an English guy. He showed up at the memory tournaments there. uh, But nobody believed him. They all thought he was using the techniques. And he wasn't all that good. So he didn't seem to have really a photographic memory. And I've never found anybody who I thought had a photographic memory. When I yeah. used to teach introductory psychology. It was always somebody's aunt, oh, my aunt has a photographic memory, or so-and-so I know. I was so well, give them this test. Uh, what, what do they remember really well? Oh, things on a page. They should remember, you know, what was at the top, what was at the bottom. So I said, okay, they really can photograph it, yeah. So I said, go give them a page, just one page, any page you want, and tell them to photograph it. And then give them the following test. Tell them to go 10 lines up from the bottom and read the letters from right to left as fast as they can. But if you have a real page in front of you, you can do that easily. Nobody can do that. They can't read the words either on the line. So they're really... uh, And there are other more fancier tests, but there just isn't a photographic memory. I mean, people... You no, know, there is a normal distribution of memory. Some people have very, very good memories. Some people have very good visual memories, but it doesn't mean it's a photographic memory.
0: We're being a little too generous with the term photographic memory. Yeah, very generous. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how we do that. We sort of uh, uh, well. There's two interesting things to what we just said. Often when we watch a person who's doing something at a really high level, we're really quick to attribute something like photographic memory to them because maybe it helps us separate ourselves from it, not feel so bad for the fact that we can't do it. Yeah. But, but also the flip side of that is interesting that when you speak to someone with an incredible talent for that kind of thing, they tell you that, no, I've got nothing special about me <laughs> in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting just to see that that disconnect between, uh, you know, depending on what perspective it comes from. Um. I wanted to ask you about, as I mentioned, I've got a couple of young boys, and the the conversation around how we're going to do their schooling is starting to sneak in. Like we've got a couple of years to decide, on the fence about whether we send them to a local school or whether you know, with our powers combined, perhaps we look at homeschooling in in some capacity. Whether it's you know, full time, part time, we don't know, but. I often hear parents speak about when they ask their kids, uh, what did you learn at school today? They'll say, oh, nothing. And obviously that's wow. not true. They're just, it's a laziness or it's a disinterest in the conversation. I'm sure there was something learned. But I asked my wife if there was any questions that she wanted me to ask you in particular. And one that she had was she was curious to, uh, to hear your thoughts on when it comes to introducing a, a new idea or a new concept to a kid. Like think of a traditional school sense. Maybe you're going to sit down and teach them reading or maths or whatever insert whatever before they start that subject they might not realize that they they've got an interest in it or a knack for it um they might not realize that they enjoy it so they're quite hesitant to actually get involved in learning it mm-hmm. is there is there any thing that you would recommend to get a bit of a kickstart to get your child engaged in actually starting to learn like whether it was an emotional cue or one of the mnemonic devices or um I was just curious to know how do we actually invite them through the door to start to learn on whatever subject yeah. it is we're trying to introduce.
1: I think um, one of the most important things, which is uh, research backs up to is reading to your child, getting them excited about books. That Here's a whole world of things and that you have to read it to them. But this book contains this wonderful story and, uh, certainly, that's what got me going, uh, and then um, I went to public schools uh, uh, as I uh, growing up, was supported by the city, the state, uh, until I uh, went away to high school, and the um, but my parents, when I would come home, my mother in particular, uh, uh, and there were four of us. But she really took an interest in our education. Every night we would talk about what we did. If I had a spelling test, I remember like in second grade, uh, I was goofing off apparently. And I I don't remember this, but my mother told the story uh, that they went to the first parent-teacher conference and uh, my mother would ask me, do you have any homework? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I've done. And... She went in, and the teacher said, "Mangie well, never does his homework. That's why he's making bad grades." And boy, that was the end of that. She was on me, uh, and we did. She tested me on the homework. And I wanted to see it every night after I'd done it, and we would talk about it. And you know, um, she if we, I had a test coming up, she would quiz me. Like a spelling test, she would give me the words, I would spell them, uh, until I had them right. And so I and we had whatever year it was spelling test every Friday, uh, so all week long every night I'd be getting those words, and so other things too like math. She was good in math. Uh, she would help all of us if we had struggled with math homework. So uh, and that was really helpful. It was kind of like having homeschooling at night and day schooling during the day. And that way I got to meet a lot of friends and do a lot of stuff. But I think for parents to be uh, really involved in their kids' schoolwork, especially the early years, and then as they figure it out and as they become self-reliant, at least in my case, they could back off because they knew I was going to do fine. uh, But to me reading to them and then just staying involved and um, I think, I, I don't know much about homeschooling, and there are all kinds of different ways it's done now in the U.S. Um, sometimes in kind of groups where the families get together and different, uh, typically mothers, but sometimes fathers you know, will teach this subject and somebody else will teach that subject. You get a little of rotation, but you're not in a formal classroom, but you get some socialization with other kids. But anyway, public school was fine for me. We had class sizes of about 25 and that was a bad size
0: yeah that was my background as well and i had it's a big debate in our and not a debate it's a big conversation because i've got such great memories of the friends and things that i made at school and we were kind of leaning towards what you just mentioned there if we were going to do it there's quite a few homeschool families in in our town that are um they, they get together on almost a daily basis and there's there's quite a few so that social aspect is something that you know, I'd have to figure out a little bit more. Yeah, it's still a big yeah. conversation. I'm not sold because, as I said, I uh, I got great memories from from where I was at, and but I've also heard some great stories on the homeschooling. So I guess it's just a yeah. hey, watch this space. Just before I let you go, Roddy, is there um, uh, is there any coaching or anything that that you do with these professional athletes, or you were doing it more from the academic sort of science? take I, We on... were
1: just studying them, yeah, observing yeah. them. I, they wouldn't come to me for coaching, believe me. <laughs> they do just a totally different, they're on a different plane. They've read lots of books about it. They talk to each other about their They're each other's coaches. It's a very friendly community, even though they're in competition. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very interesting world. And we don't yeah. talk about that much in the book. But I hope your listeners will buy and make it Sick" because we didn't talk about a lot of the things that are in the book tonight. But um, it's done very well. And we're now working on a second. Um, not second edition, but a second book. And what it's about is a lot of stories of people like teachers who have adopted the techniques and make it stick. And especially, I just was reading today about a math teacher who was struggling, his students did okay, uh, but the next year they didn't remember much. And that was because they were teaching this blocked manner they do. You know, fractions here, percentages there, something else. And so people have these in silos, and mm. they started teaching, as we talk about in the book, in an interleaved manner where you mix everything up and you keep coming back to it. So they don't just get fractions once and assume, hey, I got that. But you keep coming back to it all year. And uh, he had great success doing that, even though it was kind of a rocky start because the students saying hey, I don't get this. But you have a little practice on fractions now. You come back to them later, come back to them yet again. And by the end, you've got them because you've got spacing and you're mixing all these different things up like they are in the real world. Um, And so, and like on the test, that don't have things blocked in little categories on the test. You have to figure out what you're doing. So, uh, anyway, we're working on a second book about all the successes from Make It Stick Uh, if if you have another minute the uh, uh, Harvard Medical School revised their curriculum and we interviewed the uh, deans of education of Harvard Medical School and they said we basically based it on Make It sick. that when we give our first uh, slideshow to the incoming medical students uh, the picture of Make It sick is like the third slide and they suggest read this book, this is what we base our curriculum on, and you'll see all this kind of leaving. It won't just be the nervous system, then the muscular system, then the skeletal system. You'll be learning all this stuff together, because you'll be using it all together when you're eventually a doctor.
0: That's so, uh, that's such uh, that good would, news. That'll
1: be a chapter in the book. <laughs> uh,
0: that's, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's uh, I'm, I'm really excited. As I said, the reason I reached out to you was because uh, – I'd, I'd already just the information that I'd uh, taken on from what I'd read and watched of you was, was really exciting to me. And it's uh, sort of sparked a new project in my life to make sure I improve this. So uh, I'm excited, especially to know um, uh, that educators, academics out there are starting to, uh, or not starting to, perhaps they've done it for a little while now, but there's a fresh take on, on how students might learn more effectively. And I mean, from my own perspective, as I said, the, the pumped up feeling that I got through reading it, is I'm sure being spread through millions of people. Do you know? Do you know when the second book's out?
1: Oh, we're just written the first few chapters, so we got sure. a while—maybe no. three or four years.
0: Maybe uh, I'll uh, maybe I'll reach out to you again, and we can we can do sure. a little update soon. But sure. um, just for for everybody listening, I'm going to make sure I've got "Make It Stick" um, in the show notes to the description to this episode. Okay. So for anyone who's interested, um, yeah, make sure you check that out. But man, hey, so appreciate you making the time to yeah. come on. It's been a, a really fun conversation.
1: Yeah, well, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah, you too. See you, Roddy.
0: See you later, everybody.